Let me open us with a general word of prayer. So, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for yet another day you've given us life and breath and the ability to come and gather together with your people to worship you. Lord, we have distractions, we have things that are on our hearts, we have some good things that are percolating in our brains, some things that we're struggling against, and when it's all together, it can be used to distract us from why we've gathered together this morning. So I pray that you would help us to focus on you, that you would help us to focus on your word and its application in our own hearts. I pray that as we hear teaching in Sunday school and then teaching in the main service, that you will use it to convict us of sin, to exhort us to excel still more in the areas where we're doing well. And I pray, Lord, that you will, in all of this, help us to continue pressing on to the completion that you have for us in Christ. I pray for everything that goes on here, that you would be honored and glorified. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been in the last couple of weeks covering a section in 1 Peter chapter 3. And the bigger section is 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. And we've been working our way through this text. And today we're going to complete the verses. It really is a summary, as we've covered and we've talked about, of a section of Scripture that began in chapter 2, verse 11, and that ends at chapter 3, verse 12. It doesn't mean the book ends, of course. There's a lot more that Peter has to say. But in this particular instructive block of text, Peter is bringing his argument to a conclusion. And this entire section of Scripture, as with the entire book, is pointing us towards how we live out the overarching theme of the book. In 1 Peter 1, 14-16, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the form of lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And as I think I've explained and, and made the case, really the section of Scripture that we're dealing with is showing us a practical application of what living a holy life looks like in certain circumstances. In fact, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, as this little section within the book is being introduced, Peter again reiterates, don't follow your lusts, but then he says, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. And that's another way of saying, be holy. We live in a fallen world. These believers were living in a hostile world. They were facing persecution. Life was not easy for them. And yet in the midst of that, the, the call to Peter wasn't to hide under a rock. It was to live with excellence even amongst the Gentiles. So that even if they're slandering you and they're accusing you of things, one day they'll be ashamed. In fact, for some of them, it'll even be evangelistic because some who are mocking believers and harassing and persecuting believers could one day be glorifying God, meaning they've come to faith and repentance. Certainly that's what happened to the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was persecuting the church, was hating believers, and then he became one of the great apostles. So this is the idea that we live in a certain way in a fallen world. 
We live excellently among the Gentiles, which is another way of saying we are holy as God is holy. So I'm going to read this section again. I've been reading it each week. It goes again from verses 8 to 12. But this summarizes a larger section. We've seen how to live in relation to the government earlier in chapter 2. How do we live in relation to our employers? Jesus is the ultimate example, even in the context of how do we live as husband and wife. And then we come to this, beginning at verse 8. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So as we've gone through this, my outline was very simple. It's three keys to living a life of godly excellence. Borrowing that phraseology, live with excellence before the Gentiles, it's just three keys to living a life of godly excellence. In the last two weeks, we covered the first two keys. I'll give a brief review, and then we'll cover the third key for this. But the first was honor those the Lord brings into your life. To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. This is the summary of how do you live a life that is excellent. How do you live holy? And it applies to all of us. All of you be these things. And as I explained a little more when I first taught this, the context is such that he's really talking about amongst believers. In other words, God brings all those in the church into your life. And you need to honor them by how you live and how you treat them. Again, there's five characteristics and four out of five is not good. Three out of five is not good. You have to have all of them. Harmonious, just this unity of mind, unity of spirit, that you're living Together with the same goals and motivation, sympathetic, you have compassion for others. It's not just all about you. Brotherly love is really the idea behind that word brotherly. It's like a family. We care about each other. Kind-hearted or tender-hearted or compassionate. We care about other believers. We're not indifferent to them. And finally, humble in spirit is just a recognition of how we should view ourselves. You always should be considering others' interests is more important than your own. It's hard for all of us because we get our own pride caught up. But the humility of spirit that he's talking about here is what allows us to act rightly towards others because it's not going to be about us. It's always the challenge you come to church. Is it about you or is it about other people? Are you coming because of what you get out of it? I hope so. But more importantly, you should be coming because of your desire to serve all those who God brings together. So the first key was honor those the Lord brings into your life. Second, and we covered this last week, bless those who try to hurt you. Verse 9, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead, for you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. 
We covered a lot about retaliation. It's ingrained in us, I think, partly by our sin nature, partly by our culture's embrace of our sin nature. But when we're attacked as believers, our response is supposed to be completely different. We don't have the right to retaliate. You hurt me, I hurt you. You do evil against me, I'm going to pay you back. You insult me, I'm going to tell you about it yourself. This teaching permeates scripture. It's not isolated. It's not one of those areas where you say, well, maybe he meant something else. No, he meant exactly what he said, just like all of scripture does. It's very clear and it's very specific and there are no exceptions. Now, I alluded to the fact last week, and I did want to be clear, that certainly calling the police is not returning evil for evil. That's doing exactly what God commands us to do. The government is given to punish evil, that they bear the sword. And I mentioned that, you know, if we're not careful, our heart attitudes can drift into a revenge mindset. 9-11 certainly did that with me. And we shouldn't be rejoicing even when people are dying because even evil people we should want to repent and believe. Now, somebody came up and talked to me and I do want to clarify something. And just so there's no misunderstanding. Like I said, if you call the police, that's not, that's not returning evil for evil. That's doing what you should do. That's allowing the government, God's appointed agent to punish evil now I want to be clear by the same token someone in the military they're not returning evil for evil when they're carrying out what God called them to do by submitting to their commanding officers so for example after 9-11 even though I said our own personal heart attitude and this is very true our own personal heart attitude should not be vindictive that doesn't mean that it was wrong for our government to defend our country. doesn't mean that it was wrong for our government to attack, and it doesn't mean it was wrong for a Christian who's in the military to carry out those orders. So I don't want to create any misunderstanding. That's not returning evil for evil. That's the government doing what God called the government to do. And if Christians are a part of the armed service and they're carrying out those lawful orders, they're not violating the scripture. If you remember, the Old Testament is full of battles. God assembled armies over and over for his purposes. And so I don't want to misunderstand a believer who's serving in the armed forces is not dishonoring the Lord by fighting and doing what they're called to do. That's all part of God's role for our government. And I just wanted to make sure that was clear. The only caveat is that an individual soldier shouldn't be out for individual revenge. He certainly he carries out his missions and he does what he's supposed to do. But I would suggest he has to guard his heart to make sure that he doesn't lose sight of who he ultimately serves. But it wasn't just don't return evil for evil or insult for insult. The difficult, the impossible part is he calls us to actually do something positive. But giving a blessing instead. To speak well of, to praise, that's almost impossible. And yet, that's what we're supposed to do even when we're faced with hardship and insult. 
And it's all tied up in the fact that that's part of our calling as believer. For you were called for the very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. In other words, as we've been forgiven much, as we've received God's grace, we should want to extend that grace and we should want others to receive the same blessing we did. So that's a a quick review of the first two aspects of this teaching. So now we're going to move on to the third and final key to living a life of godly excellence. This is our new material for today and this Lord willing, we'll wrap up this particular section of Scripture. The third key to living a life of godly excellence is this. Fear the Lord who promises justice. Fear the Lord who promises justice. I'll explain this and I think it will become crystal clear. Beginning in verse 10. For the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And as Peter is coming to the end of this, he's using that word for as a, as a transition. And it's explanatory. And he's basically saying the Old Testament scriptures prove this. Anytime you see, depending on your version, but I use the New American, anytime you see all caps, it's normally a quotation, at least in part, of something from the Old Testament, normally the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. But in this case, Peter is quoting Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. I'm going to read it. As it is now. And you'll see how closely the words resemble each other. You'll see immediately that this is exactly what Peter was talking about. Psalm 34, 12 to 16 says, Who is the man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. So Peter, as is often the case in the writings of the New Testament, he has made an assertion and now he's proving that assertion from Scripture. It's clear. He sees the principles and the truths laid out in Psalm 34 as proving the very thing that he's just commanded in relation to not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. In other words, he he really believes this shows the reason why retaliation and responding tit for tat is wrong for a believer. And he is just showing us again the consistency of all that God has always said. Now, I won't go through every nuance of this particular psalm. Pastor Steve's teaching on a lot of the psalms is incredible. And you could look up his teaching on Psalm 34. Peter is doing a little bit more of an overview here and using the principles. And so while we're going to talk a little bit about some of the parts, it's not going to be the in-depth dissecting word by word that we might often do. Because what Peter's trying to do is show us a big picture to prove his point. And so I'm going to try and describe things in that vein. Now, Peter, as he's referring to this Old Testament text, obviously sees God's children 
described in that text, believers. And I believe he sees it, going back to our text this morning in verse 10, the one who desires life to love and see good days. He sees in that God's true children, believers. That's who we are, those who desire life and to love and see good days. Scholars have referred to Psalm 34, hadn't read it before, saw it this week, an ancient recipe for a happy life. And that's probably true to some extent, but we're on the other side of the cross, and Peter is using this not to give a how-to of how to live. He's using it saying, these are the characteristics of God's children, which proves that you shouldn't retaliate. You shouldn't do evil for evil. He's clearly not addressing the entire world and trying to give a self-help. This is how you can have your best life. It's not going to be an infomercial if you desire life. To love and see good days, call 1-800. But he's talking about believers. The word desires here is really just talking about what's driving our hearts. The motivating force. And Peter sees that believers have this desire. He's not telling us to cultivate it. He's just saying, look, You don't retaliate because this is already what you want. We should want lives that are blessed in godly sense and happy and good, but not in the personal self-indulgence sense. Rather in the sense of how God intended and what God planned for his children. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it really describes the purpose of the gospel of John. Verse 30 says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are written in this book. Verse 31, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's the concept here. Not just our daily existence. It's a comprehensive understanding of the type of fullness of life we can have in Christ when we believe. And again, within that type of life, it's not wrong to desire the good that God gives to his children. In fact, scripture says we can ask for those things. Matthew 7, 11. Jesus was making a point about God the Father in prayer by saying, look, even you regular old people give your kids good things. Verse 11, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? We can desire good things. In fact, Peter is assuming that we do desire that. Again, not in some sense of self-indulgence, but in the sense of where we recognize while we're on this earth, whether life is good or difficult, God is putting blessings in our life. James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of lights. So when Psalms, Psalm 34 describes the one who desires life to love and see good days, it's perfectly appropriate for Peter to see that as reflective of the true heart attitude of a child of God. It's you and me. 
But there's a clear delineation about the nature of that life given in the psalm that Peter is again. We always have to keep the big picture in mind. Peter is telling you don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult. But give a blessing. This is what it's all about. So going back to the text, the one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. No lying. No attacking. You see, this ties right in with no insult for insult. One of God's children shouldn't be using their tongue to further evil in retaliatory sense. Of course, of any other sense, but Peter's proving don't retaliate, don't insult when someone insults you. And he shows from the psalm, look, this is not how God's children do. They've got to keep their tongue from evil. Their lips shouldn't speak deceit. And then beginning in verse 11, as he's continuing his loose quotation, he must turn away from evil and do good. Again, Don't repay evil for evil, insult for insult, but you give a blessing instead. And again, he's just showing, this is what God's standard has always been. I'm not coming up with something new, you could almost hear Peter saying. And if at any given point in time somebody wants to say, is that really what God said? Well, when you're quoting what God said, it's a pretty powerful argument. Peter goes on in his quotation, he must seek peace and pursue it. Again, this is what a child of God is supposed to be doing. Peter isn't really coming up with a new set of commands. He's just using these commands that have been here forever, so to speak, in their life, hundreds, decades, centuries He must seek peace and pursue it. Again, why does that matter? Because if you're retaliating, are you seeking peace? No, you're seeking revenge. One of the interesting things, last week I said, okay, we're taught, somebody pushes you, you push back. But, You can go and do a Google search on YouTube. I wouldn't advise it. And what you see is after the first push and the second push, then it turns into a Donnybrook and chairs are flying and people are throwing bottles. You couldn't imagine anything farther removed from peace. Peter is calling us through the scriptures by pointing out what God's children's characteristics should be, that this is the exact opposite of responding to evil with evil. Romans 12:18 I quoted it before in a prior teaching, but if possible so far as it depends on you be at peace with all men. We are to be pursuers of peace. Matthew 5:9 Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. In every situation, we, rather than escalating tension, should be trying to de-escalate whatever is occurring. Now, mind you, there are times, even if we do everything right, the person on the other side could get out of control. That's why in the Romans taste, it says, so far as it depends on you. And the goal isn't, well, I'm going to try and settle things down, and if you don't straighten up, then I'm going to 
then I'm going to punch you. That's not the idea. The idea is for us is we always walk away. God even gives principles for relationships that can help in this area. They're not absolute truths, but it's the kind of thing that if you think about it, it helps. I used to think about this kind of stuff a lot as a lawyer because lawyers, by their very nature, were always in the midst of something. But Proverbs 15.1 is one of the first scriptures I memorized as a new believer. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. As someone at that point in my life who regularly traded in harsh words, I had to put that to memory to remember that a believer is seeking peace. They're using gentle responses. Of course, we never compromise on evil. Of course, that doesn't mean we avoid speaking the truth when the truth needs to be spoken. But even when we have to tell people that they are wrong... Even if we have to confront them and tell them that what they think or their lives are contrary to what God says, we don't do it with a closed fist. Ephesians 4, 14 and 15 talks about when you have to correct error. Verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of man, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up into all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. Even when we're speaking the truth, even when we're standing for the truth, it has to be in love. There's an incongruity when you see some Christians, and nothing wrong with a Christian at a particular time, engaging in the culture... But when you see Christians standing on the corner holding a sign and they're screaming and the veins are standing out in their neck and you can spewing hatred at people, you realize they're not going to be peacemakers. They're certainly not speaking the truth in love. We all need this. I need this as much as anyone. That constant reminder that my duty is to calm things, not inflame things. I keep a verse in my line of sight in my office. If you came in and sat down, you wouldn't see it. Because you'd be facing me and it would be to your back. I have it there not for people who come see me. I have it there for me. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. And again, these are just principles showing the lack of retaliation and And Peter's showing us a big picture from Psalm 34. We're to seek peace. But 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25 says this. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, verse 25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So Peter's not carving new ground here. He's not putting something before us that's foreign to the rest of scripture. He's just reiterating truths that have always been a part of God's plan for his children living in a fallen world. 
So Peter's established. What he's saying, don't retaliate, don't respond to evil for evil, insult for insult, give a blessing instead. It's consistent with what God has said and elsewhere in Scripture. But Peter, by continuing his quotation of Psalm 34, provides sort of the exclamation point. It's explanatory and exclamatory. And it provides the real basis for the third point. Fear the Lord who promises justice. And I could summarize it with this. God is watching. God is watching. Verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears attend to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Again, we always step back and we see Peter's just saying, my point is proven by Scripture. And part of the Scripture he says is that the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. That's an encouragement to us. We know we have the righteousness of Christ. But his point is that God is looking and seeing everything. And God's pleased when his children are doing his will. It says his ears attend to their prayer. In other words, when you're walking in pursuit of God's desires, you're walking in accord with his will, God's hearing our prayers. He's responding. Maybe not always like we like, but we can be assured he's listening to us. I think this takes on some significant context when you remember that in chapter 3, verse 7, one of the admonitions that Peter gave to husbands is that if you're not treating your wife with honor, your prayers are hindered. In other words, you might as well be praying to a tin roof over your head because everything's bouncing back at you if you're living in sin against your wife. And the second part of the verse makes it clear that nothing's getting past the Lord. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. God's not putting his favor on evil. Again, if you think back to the admonition, don't repay evil for evil, don't return evil for evil. He's quoting from this psalm that says the Lord is actually against those who are trying to do evil. Here's the point. We can trust that God will sort out all of that. For us, we don't have to be judge and jury because God's overworked. And because God's occupied elsewhere, let me take care of this for the Lord and I'll be the executioner. That's wrong. That's not necessary. You can rest assured, regardless of what's going on, that no one is getting away with anything. Quite often that seems to be the big fear. I've heard that so many times in talking to believers over the years. Before Lakeside, at Lakeside. But they'll get away with it. That's faulty theology. If what you mean is they may not immediately face the harsh consequences that you want for them, well, we're talking 
you've got a bad definition. God does not miss anything. Including the person who treats you in an evil manner and insults you. Hebrews 4.13 as an illustration. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. If you're worried about evil people, take comfort in that. They're not hiding from the Lord. So first, we can trust the Lord that at the end, injustice will not prevail. He may not right all the wrongs that we want in the manner we want, on the timeline that we want, but we needn't worry that the universe is going to be out of balance if we don't respond and retaliate. It's just not. That isn't real. And if you're so caught up and I've got to retaliate, I've got to do this, reflect a little bit on Jesus saying, Father, forgive them. But they don't know what they're doing. Because if anybody would ever want to fight back, it would have had to have been at that moment. Now, I do think there's always a good caution for us when we see some statement like this, that the Lord deals with evil, we have to be careful as believers because God does discipline His children. Hear me very carefully. We will never be punished for our sins. Why? It is finished. Praise the Lord for that. Every punishment for our sin is dealt with on the cross. But according to the scriptures, for example, Hebrews 12, 6... Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. Doesn't mean he's punishing us for our sin, but there are times where he places his hand on us to get us to turn from the direction we're going. I almost picture a toddler trying to run out in traffic and you just grab him by the head. Hold on. Or maybe you grab him by the arm and turn him the other way. God lovingly does that to us to keep us from horrific things. And this morning's a communion service, and I'm certain at some point we'll be reminded that even in that we have to reflect on our hearts. Why? Because some people were so contemptuous of the Lord, even though they were believers, that God put them to sleep, meaning they actually died. That's not punishment, that's just the Lord's discipline to avoid further shame in the life of a believer. So if your habit is to retaliate, it should be percolating around in your mind, oh, that would be exactly the type of sin the Lord would discipline. And if the Lord hasn't disciplined you in a way that you know it already, rest assured, He didn't miss what you did. He never misses what we do. And it's possible that God's loving discipline will come to you if you don't learn to repent of your anger that causes you to lash out and repay evil for evil. So Peter's teaching for us is not easy in the sense of it's no big deal. 
the remaining residual sinful tendencies in our flesh make this a lifelong challenge. This is one of those texts where I think we can read it and I can prove from the scripture, as Peter proved from the scripture, this is what God wants and then we can walk away from here and get angry and forget it all in a minute. So let me encourage you, as I'm encouraging me, let me exhort you as I'm exhorting myself, take seriously the exhortations that Peter is giving to us. If you just stopped for a moment and thought about your typical week, who you see on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, maybe you're involved in extracurricular activities at a club or an event, remember, as you walk into every setting, you're an ambassador of Christ. Your behavior is supposed to be excellent particularly among the Gentiles, the unbelievers. Because you never know where in that given moment in time when you respond correctly to evil and you don't retaliate for an insult, it can be evangelistic in the life of an unbeliever who's watching. Let me close our time in the Word in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the consistent teaching of your word that calls us away from a worldly way of living and points us to a better way. Lord, we want to live lives pleasing to you. I don't believe any of us wants turmoil and conflict and anger and frustration to characterize our existence. But if we're not careful, Lord, the accumulated difficulties that we encounter can cause us to get our thinking way off base. Such that instead of thinking that we're your ambassadors, we start thinking, how dare you? Lord, help us overcome our pride. Lord, help us overcome our narrow theology that overlooks the fact that you are in control of everything and there's no injustice that will escape you. Lord, far too often we want immediate justice on our terms and we're not content to wait on you. Help us with that, Lord. And I pray as we deal with these real issues of life that we encounter every single day of people who may sin against us, even other believers, that you'll help us not to turn inward with a sense of injustice, but to turn upward and look at the cross and be reminded of what Christ has done for us. And help us respond in light of the cross as a godly example and as a testimony of your love rather than out of anger that is just a testimony to our annoyance. Lord, we ask your help. We need your help. 
We pray that by your spirit we'll be able to live the life you've called us to. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.